Thank you very much, uh, Don, and uh, a joyful and blessed good morning to you as we come to delve into the glorious and beautiful Word of God. And uh, if I have to take a little break every once in a while to get some water, forgive me, allergies and antihistamines cause dry mouth, you know, so if I shut down completely, somebody's going to have to take over, so... Uh, Aubrey is out sick with allergies, and so please keep him in your prayers. And uh, if you want a title for my teaching this morning, we'll just simply call it Blindness. Blindness. And with that, let's go to the Gospel of John in the third chapter. The Gospel of John in the third chapter starting in verses 1 through 12, and this will be our reading of Scripture. I will be going through other portions of Scripture, and then we will conclude in the main portion of our text in John chapter 9, toward the end. So we're in John chapter 3 in the first verse. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus said to Christ, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from, where it is going, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. So if I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The old adage I know many of us has heard many, many times in many different places is seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. But what if you're blind? That really doesn't apply, does it? It really doesn't make sense. It really doesn't fit to the circumstances. So when we read that text in John chapter 3, what were the words that Christ said here as he was speaking to Nicodemus, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. I remember when we were youngsters growing up in southeast Texas, and we would come annually either to Houston or to San Antonio to purchase shoes or the few odds and ends that we couldn't get in the small community where we lived. And I always enjoyed the trips to San Antonio far more than I did the ones to Houston. And a lot more exciting. We would generally end up at Joskis right next to the Alamo, get to be able to see the Alamo. And then if time permitted and money was available, go around the corner to the great and beautiful majestic theater to take in a movie, which was a real, real treat. And just to be inside the majestic theater with all its massive architecture and beautiful structure was a treat itself. But one of the points of that was is we would walk in front of the Alamo and turn down, I think it's Navarro or Houston Street to go to the Majestic, and right on that corner of these buildings, very, very busy downtown area, Saturdays, would be a man sitting with his back up against the building. And he would have a cup with pencils on one side of him. And he would have a hat turned upside down, upright, on the other side of him. And he had his white walking stick. And he was one of the people that lived at a place called, a charitable place that took care of people who were blind. Either blind from birth, or blinded by an industrial accident, or a uh, biological problem, or something like that. And they would take these people downtown and put them out. And there they would sit, and you could give something into the hat for them, take a pencil if you wanted it, which had the name Lighthouse for the Blind on it, and then at the end of the day they would come and pick them up and take them home and take care of them in the facilities that they had. And I always remember that vividly, one particular man that I saw multiple years in a row, and I was question after question after question to my father and to my mother about blindness. And I think all of us have some phobia in relationship to that. Not long ago, I had the three grandsons read John chapter 9, which is the chapter about the blind beggar. And I said, now, after you read this, we came back and we discussed it a few days later, this over the Christmas holidays. And so I challenged him as I would challenge you to go home, to find the darkest closet you have in your house, turn off the light, sit down, and put your hands over your face, and time how long you can stay in there. It won't be very long, but together the full essence and the effect of blindness, of blindness, not being able to see. But now when Christ is talking to Nicodemus, we have a problem. Nicodemus is standing, quorum Deo in the Latin, face to face with Messiah. And yet Nicodemus can still not see. So we are looking at the beauty of what the scriptures are teaching us here in the awesomeness of Jesus Christ 
And we see this scenario played out many, many times in the New Testament. Pharisees, disciples, and all did not follow them. Seeing, seeing, it's not always believing, is it? What is the problem? The usage of the word in the Greek in the scriptures, and it holds true to the Hebrew as well, of the word see has two destinations. One is the physical perception, as I see Frank sitting there, and as I see Patsy sitting here, and to perceive the things about you, to have the capacity and ability to do that through the visual way God has created us. The other is the Greek word in John chapter 3 called iodon. And that word has a completely different meaning. It is the second meaning of the Greek word. So this is why theologians study particular words and particular texts and do them this way so that they are assured that they're understanding what is being conveyed within the scriptures. And this word, and after you read this again, if I hope you do this week, John chapter 3, 1 through 11, or the whole chapter, you will see that this word is, its meaning, as it is defined in the Greek, is to know. It's not to see. It's to know or become intimately acquainted with. That is how it is used in this text. So when you read it, you see now Christ is not just speaking of the visual. He is speaking of the spiritual, the in intimacy, the relationship of it. And then when you go back to Psalm 119 and verse 18, the psalmist wrote, Open my eyes that I might see. Open my eyes that I might see the wonderful truths of thy word. He was writing them by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he was asking for his eyes to be open, the same word, but in the Hebrew, so that I may know, not just physical, but manifestly spiritual. Herein lies the distinguishment of the beauty of the scriptures there. So if we can see physically, why couldn't Nicodemus see spiritually? And why can't any of us see spiritually, even though we may see physically as many, many, many did in the age of the New Testament as it was being written and this church was being established? It obviously is a problem. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And let's see what we're dealing with here. Because again, the word that Christ is saying to Nicodemus is you're a teacher, Nicodemus. Of any people out here and around, you should understand what the scriptures are saying. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I have come to fulfill the will of my Father and to fulfill the covenant that really takes the old covenant and makes it new, fulfills the law, and becomes the one whom salvation is given. But Nicodemus could not see this. 
because Nicodemus, like all of us in our natural state, are spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. And even if we don't have sight, we are still spiritually blind. So as we look here, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead, Paul speaking to those people at the church, writing to them at that church, speaking intimately to them at that church because he knew them personally at that church. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then Paul includes himself here too. And we, and among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, including the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest and everyone else is. So when scripture is speaking here of being dead in trespass and sin, it's not a percentage of our, our person. It is all of us physically alive, spiritually stillborn. This is how we come into the world, and this is how we are. Dead in our trespass and sin, and Paul places himself right there in the same category. We cannot see as Nicodemus couldn't, so we could not know and become relational in it. So that is the problem. It is a problem of not blindness in physical sight. It's a problem of blindness of the spirit and soul. So let's do this. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Let's see an example of what Scripture is teaching us here this morning from the words of Christ in John chapter 3 and the teachings of the Holy Spirit through Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And now to this text as an example of spiritual blindness with sight. Paul could see physically. Paul could not see spiritually. You could name him Nicodemus likewise. But he happened to be known in this text as Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 9 and we go to verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples and the Lord, went to the high priest. Just a few chapters before this, Paul stood, Saul of Tarsus, excuse me, stood next to those disciples of his who came and stoned to death the martyr Stephen. This is Saul of Tarsus we're speaking of. This is Saul of Tarsus we're speaking of. 
the man who was a rabbi, the man who was a teacher, the man who held to the law, a man who went out and sought Christian people to bring judgment against them because he, they were following a Messiah called Jesus Christ and not the Old Testament covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. And just a few pages before, he stood and held the cloths of those who stoned to death Stephen for Stephen's desire to give glory to the Lord and proclaim Jesus Christ as Messiah. This is Saul. This is blind Saul. He was still breathing threats, verse 1, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest there in Jerusalem and asked for letters for the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any way, any, any of those belonging to the way, that's the way of Christ. That was a term used at that time to distinguish followers of Christ. Belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem for court, for judgment for perhaps even a demise like Stephen. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could, not, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. But there was a disciple there at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to Ananias in a vision. And Ananias answered and said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to Ananias, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is at present praying. And he has, see, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So there was a revision to Ananias to go to Saul of Tarsus, and Saul saw the same vision of what Ananias was going to do when he came. So they both knew, but had never met. Ananias answered, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight, physical, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, spiritual. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, 
and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized and he took food and he was strengthened. And now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. What a difference three days makes. From physically seeing to physically blind. From spiritually blind to spiritually seeing. In the life of Paul. Let's go to John chapter 9 to see another example of this. John chapter 9. This is a great teaching in the scriptures of the sovereignty of God in relationship to mankind and to suffering and to why people go through these type of things. That's answered for us in the first five verses of John chapter 9. That's not the part I want to go to, but I have to mention it so that we understand all of it fully. When you look at John chapter 9, you find... This is the story of the blind beggar, the lighthouse man, I told you about, the man that could not see, but was also spiritually blind. And that for years and years and years was in the streets of Jerusalem there. And the people knew him. His parents were there. They had to take him out to go sit on the corner to get bread. They had to take him out to sit on the corner to beg. He never saw a dog, never saw a child, never saw a stream, never saw a hill, never saw a tree. From birth, from birth, physically blind, physically blind. And so when the disciples and Jesus came out of the temple, and I hope we would be like that too if we were walking with Christ at that time, they asked him, they asked Christ, as they passed by this blind man, in chapter 9 of John, verse 2, The disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And here's the answer Christ gave. Neither. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, in this blind man. that the works of God would be displayed in this man's life through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you think they were displayed in the life of Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus? Physically, he could see. The power of God took that away from him. Spiritually, he was as dead as a Pharisee killing Christians. God made him see spiritually so that he would know. And immediately, he started to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. Now, if you knew Saul last week on Monday, and you saw Saul today on Sunday, 
You think there'd be a change? So then we go to John chapter 9 and we find that the question is, who sinned? God says it isn't a matter of sin, but he is blind from birth in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And now this is what we want to see as we go toward our coming together of the understanding of this. It's like Paul Harvey used to say the rest of the story. And we know why God has allowed this. But then we find that this blind man is sent by Christ to the pool of Siloam, and Christ takes spudel, his own spudel, with dirt, and puts them on his eyes, covers his eyes with that, and he tells him, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. This is a central area that all these people are, marketplace, hundreds, thousands of people. There's a pool of Siloam there. It's a freshwater well. This is where everyone gets their water, drinks their water, takes their water home. The marketplace is here. The temple is here. All of this is going on. The Pharisees here in all their flowing robes, their phylacteries, their frontals, there's everything that they wore with different type of Old Testament quotations on there. And Christ is here in the midst of them. The blind man is here in the midst of them. It is a regular day. And then Christ does this. Tells him to go wash. He goes and washes and he comes back. And then the inquisition starts. Can you imagine the first day of sight in your life if you had been born blind for 20, 30 years? Wow. What that must be like for him to see what he saw there. And so then they get into a big confrontation, you know, the Jews. And in this text, they call Christ a sinner three times and deny his ability and who he is and that he healed this blind man. Because at this point, they don't know who's healed him. So they bring the blind man in, the beggar, the poor man. And they have two inquisitions, one with him and then one with him and his parents. Who healed you? Who did this? Who made you see? How did he do this? What is his name? It was just beyond the norm of their religiosity. And well, that's a picture of a lot of us before Christ. We have our own norm of religiosity, don't we? And if it doesn't fit into it, we don't like it, or we reject it, or we deny it, or we modify it, or we change it, or we aberrate it. These guys couldn't handle the truth. So when he comes back, and I'm going to go and do all this in narrative for you, they want to know how and who. Christ is here in in this city right now, in the presence of these people, but not in the very near presence of these people. And so they say things like this to this man. Who did this to you? In verse 11 he says, this is the blind man answering. The man who is called Jesus made clay, and he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to the well of Siloam and wash so I went away, I washed, and I received 
my sight. And then the Pharisee said to him, where is this man? The beggar answered, I don't know. I do not know where he is. And so then it was on the Sabbath day when all this was going on, verse 14. Oh my. Christ healed on the Sabbath? I wonder how many people have been saved in the world on the Sabbath day. And so that was a big offense to the Pharisees. And so they asked him, in verse 15, again, therefore the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Now this is redundant. You can see that this man is wanting to enjoy the life that he has now have, being able to physically see. And all these people are starting to question him and say, how can a man who is a sinner perform signs like this and bring life? So now there's a religious debate, and there's a blind bearer wanting just to take advantage of the beauty of being able to see again. And in verse 17, they said, therefore, to the blind man again, what did you say about him, about him since he opened your eyes? And the blind man said, well, he must be a prophet. There's some power there, some ability there. The Jews, verse 18, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. So we go into denial. You know. We don't want to accept the reality and the truth of sometimes of what we're told of the goodness and the purity of Scripture. So we go into denial. We reject it. And then they go to his parents. And they say, is this really your son? Or is this somebody else that's been substituted here and y'all playing a trick on us and making like this Messiah person named Jesus has done this? And the parents, they're afraid to death. They say, ask him, he's of age. Ask him, he's of age. And if that would mean that he had the ability to answer for himself without his parents. But in verse 22, he explains to us that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone would confess Jesus to be the Messiah, he would be thrown out of the synagogue. Relationships are real to us, aren't they? They're meaningful. We want to be accepted. We want to accept. But fear sometimes shuts our mouth when it should be open. And fear sometimes shuts our soul when it should see. So we go to a little further into the portion of this text. He's answered multiple, multiple, multiple times. And this is a great look into the calling of Jesus Christ, into the calling of the Holy Spirit, drawing someone to themselves. They're trying to tell him to change his mind. They're trying to say he wasn't blind. They're trying to tell him that Christ was a sinner and didn't have the power to do this. So in verse 27, the blind man answered and said, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Now that's speaking pretty brazenly to this powerful group 
of religious leaders called the Pharisees who have the authority over your parents to be ostracized from the synagogue for you to be thrown out and become the vermin of the earth as far as that society goes. I told you already and you did not listen because you don't want to hear it. You do not want to become one of his disciples, do. So he's chiding them. He's saying, what's the matter? You're afraid to listen to what I have to say? You're afraid of the truth? You might become one of his disciples also. And they reviled him, verse 28, and said, you are his disciple, but we are a disciple of Moses. In our real natural life in Ephesians 2, we are a disciple of ourself when we're dead in our trespass and sin. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we don't know where he comes from, speaking of Jesus. And so the blind man again answered, you want to see the boldness of grace when God starts drawing a person into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ? Pay attention to these man's words. And the blind man answered and said, well, here is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. You kind of see the same thing Christ said to Nicodemus? You're the teacher. You're standing right here before me. And you don't know. Ephesians 2. The naturalist of ourself does not allow us to know. So when Christ, verse 35, heard that they had thrown him out, that's the end result of all this dialogue is if you don't want to hear the truth, what do you do with it? You put it on the shelf. Or you reject it here. Or you reject it here. Or you modify it. Or you change it. Or you make it what you want to make it. Grace brings boldness. This is a peasant man, a poor man, a blind man, begging on the corners. He's standing literally before kings, and he says to them, you don't know. You're supposed to be the gurus of theological knowledge, and you don't know. But I know this. I was blind, and now I see because of this man. But obviously they couldn't see. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. And Jesus went and found. They threw this man out of their midst. They threw this man out of every association with them that there was. Completely rejected from his people and his culture. Who went to find him? Who went to find him? Jesus went and found him. And ask him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Listen to the beauty. This is the words of a person coming to the knowledge and knowing and understanding Jesus Christ because of the spiritual power working within. Listen to this. The man answers. The question Christ said is, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man said, who is he, Lord? He's looking at Jesus. First day of his life that he's been able to see. 
He's standing in the face of Jesus. Only shortly had he heard his words. He had heard about Jesus, but he did not know him. And yet he, Jesus was the one that gave him sight. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. The man's answer, I believe. And he fell and worshipped him. There's a dramatic reality that transformation comes with the power of the gospel in the life of Jesus Christ to bring one from spiritual blindness, excuse me, physical blindness and spiritual blindness to being able to see now. As Paul had seen physically, he was blind spiritually. Now he saw both ways. And this man was blind both ways. And now he sees physically again and spiritually. You have seen him and he is the one talking to you. And he said, I believe and he worshiped. As we come into conclusion here, here's the words you want to hear out of this truth of God in John chapter 9. And, John, and Jesus said in 39, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see will see. I came into this world for judgment for those who do not see, spiritual, will see. And that those who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were there present heard him say these things and they said to them, you're not saying we're blind, blind to the things of the truth of God. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, like that beggar, physically and spiritually, if you were blind like Paul, spiritually, even though he could see physically, you would have no sin. See, the blind man had sin, and he came to know it. And now he has no sin. But since you, you say you see, you know, you have Moses, you have the law, and you deny me and call me a sinner, we, you say you see, look at those last four words, your sin remains. Your sin remains. The question is, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you see? Do you see? Do I see? Do I see? I have just a couple of minutes. Don, will you bring me a hymnal, please? Please, sir. I want, I want something that happened to me when I prepared this study to personally share with you. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's just a joy. Of, thank you, sir. 
I figured you could get up this way better than I could get down that way. And I, I want you to take your hymnals. And I want you to look at um, hymn 563. I enjoyed preparing this so much and the teachings that I got out of it myself that I don't, the hymns are sometimes, most of them are written, the older hymns are out of the structure of the scriptures. In hymn 563, I had Melinda look up last night, it was written by Clara Scott, who lived from 1841 to 1897. She taught music in Iowa, and she was the first lady to write an anthem of hymns first lady author to write an anthem of hymns, which is quite a feat in that period of time. And when you remember earlier when I was teaching, earlier in this session, I quoted Psalm 119, 18, verse 18, open my eyes that I might see the wonderful truth of thy words. Look at the top there under the title. I did not know that. I just knew this is the part of what I wanted to share with you, a little few of these stanzas out of this hymn. But I had no idea this was the hymn she built. This was the text of scripture she built this hymn upon. I didn't know that till I opened it this morning to check the number. I looked at it in our hymnal at home, which has different numbers, you know, so I wanted to be sure what number. And when I did, I saw that one, Psalm 119, 118. Listen, just listen as we close. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. And place in my hands a wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Stanza two. Open my ears that I might hear voices of truth that sound as clear. And while the wave notes fall on my ear, everything false will disappear. Open my mouth and let me bear gladly the warm truth everywhere. And open my heart and let me prepare love with thy children thus to share. Silently now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my heart, and here's the word, illumine me by your spirit divine. To be illumined is to give life and sight to. The Holy Spirit illumines Christ finds us, he saves us, and he gives us sight. And the power of the gospel is the power and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he displayed that in the life of the blind beggar, as well as he did Paul, and as well as he does you and I. If you see, praise him. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time. The joy is the, in our life is the joy, the truth of Scripture, the transforming power of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Father's grace to give us who were born dead in our trespass and sin, alive physically, but spiritually unborn, Lord. The light of light of Jesus Christ would come into our heart, mind, and soul, so that we may know, that we may see, that we may love, and that we may live this life to the praise of his glory.
Amen.